is water spinning in a bucket proof for an absolute space and time that exists independent from the phenomenal world and our minds? In this podcast, we'll take a look at how contrarian philosopher Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz rejected absolute space and time and came instead to propose that space and time emerge from the relation between things in the phenomenal world, while maintaining the seemingly contradictory belief that time and space are, quote-unquote, beings of the mind. Welcome, welcome to the Continental Philosophy Now podcast, formerly known as the Think Philosophy podcast. The first thing that I have to do is a shout out to Samil Molina and Mark Bamford, along with two other anonymous patrons who chose to support Think Philosophy and this podcast through our Patreon campaign. If you want to find out how you too can contribute to help us to push our content out to more curiously minded folk, you can just go to supportthinkphilosophy.org and that will take, take you to our Patreon page. As I prepared to reboot this podcast, I decided that a change of name was in order in order to more accurately reflect the topics that I want to cover. When I started Think Philosophy many years ago, it was because I was running philosophy salons and the, 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 the name Think Philosophy emerged at that time for that purpose. So it no longer reflects the kind of focus that I want to have, particularly in this podcast. I want to cover topics in contemporary European philosophy, including, but not limited to, existentialism, phenomenology, hermeneutics, and critical theory. And we'll cover everything from the classics in continental philosophy to contemporary ideas in critical race theory, feminist philosophy, queer theory, and so on and so forth, depending on what you guys are interested in as well. I had been going back and forth on how to get started. When I had this moment of inspiration, I was sitting here at my desk in front of my computer trying to figure out what files to open. And then I and I was on Twitter and I saw some of the Twitter feeds and I was reading that and I thought, huh, maybe I should just send out a little tweet and do an experiment and see what you guys are interested in. So I sent out a tweet saying, I'm going to try this experiment. The first person to tweet at me a philosophy topic that I can reasonably cover for a podcast episode wins, basically wins that podcast. And so I had a bunch of suggestions, but the first one in through the gate was logical analysis and their Twitter handle at logical analysis. They, or she or he suggested that I take a look at Leibniz's idealistic theory of space and time. Thanks for the idea, logical analysis, and tune into my Twitter feed. I am at T Philosophia um, at around 9 p.m. Eastern time for the next opportunity to suggest a topic. If you don't already follow me on Twitter, you can go to the show notes for this podcast episode. I'll include a link there to so you can find me easily on Twitter. Okay, so today we're going to get into Leibniz's theory of space and time. But first, a little bit of an intro on Leibniz and a few interesting tidbits from his life 
And then we'll get into the meat of the matter. And then we'll get into the heart of the matter, I should say, because meat, I'm a vegetarian verging on vegan. So maybe that doesn't really work for me and some others. So yeah, we're going to get into the heart of the matter after we take care of a little bit of framing uh, of this topic. Okay, so Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. His dates are from 1646 to 1716. He basically sits between Descartes, who died in 1650, and Kant, who was born in 1724. Along with Descartes and his contemporary Spinoza, who lived around pretty much in the same period of time, um, they were known, Descartes, Spinoza, and Leibniz, as uh, the great rationalists of the 17th century. Now, according to Wikipedia, in epistemology, and I'm quoting here, quote, in epistemology, rationalism is the view that regards reason as the chief source and test of our knowledge, or any view appealing to reason as a source of knowledge or justification. More formally, rationalism is defined as a methodology or a theory in which the criterion of the truth is not sensory, but intellectual and deductive. Rationalists believe reality has an intrinsically logical structure. And because of this, rationalists argue that certain truths exist and that the intellect can directly grasp these truths. That is to say, rationalists assert that certain rational principles exist in logic, mathematics, ethics, metaphysics that are so fundamentally true that denying them causes one to fall into contradiction, thus the source for contradiction. Rationalists have such a high confidence in reason that empirical proof and physical evidence are unnecessary to ascertain the truth. In other words, there are significant ways in which our concepts and knowledge are gained independently of sense experience. Because of this belief, empiricism is one of rationalism's greatest rivals, end quote. And I thought I'd read that to you because, uh, you know, Wikipedia, it is a pretty concise an accurate uh, definition of rationalism. Now it bears mentioning also in this kind of time uh, frame that Sir Isaac Newton was also a contemporary of Leibniz. And it, it, I'm mentioning this because it was against Newton's view of space and time in a series of letters between Leibniz and Newton defender Samuel Clark that we get the most consistent and sustained discussion of Leibniz's views, specifically where it comes to space and time. That's it for the time period frame of Leibniz's life and philosophy. Now, here are three fun tidbits about Leibniz's life, things that I found interesting, not related to his metaphysics or his physics, his philosophy, um, but because he was a very busy thinker and did some very interesting things. Again, here I'm taking from the Wikipedia entry on Leibniz. One, and I'm quoting here, following the motto, Theoria cum praxi, which is Latin. It sounds sexy, doesn't it? Theoria cum praxi. He urged that theory be combined with practical application, and thus he has uh, he thus has been claimed as the father of applied science. Also, too, Leibniz may have been the first computer scientist and information theorist. How about that? And that is because early in life he documented the binary numeral system. 
and then revisited that system throughout his career. So he basically invented the binary numeral system on which computers run. That's pretty amazing. And three, while serving as librarian of the Ducal Libraries in Hanover, and I'm going to mess up this name, Wolfenbuetel, it's German, um, Leibniz effectively became one of the founders of library science. The later library was enormous for its day, and it contained more than 100,000 volumes. And Leibniz helped to design helped to design a new building for it, believed to be the first building explicitly designed to be a library. And then finally, apart from that, it's interesting that when Leibniz died, his reputation was in the gutter. Voltaire, the famous French writer, ridiculed his views about nothing being clear in Voltaire's work Candide. And by the time he died, Leibniz, no one but his personal secretary attended his funeral. Can you imagine? And his grave was unmarked for 50 years. That just goes to show the appeal of Leibniz. And today there is an increasing interest in both Leibniz and, and Spinoza. Um, that he was writing for a future, for, for readers and for thinkers who weren't even born yet. I always find that really interesting when, you know, the, the people that we admire uh, died uh, and were in their time uh, not appreciated. Now, interestingly, there is one person that he influenced, and that is the chief proponent of empiricism of his time. And remember, empiricism is the, the antagonist, the opposite of rationalism. And I'm referring to, of course, um, the bon vivant, David Hume. They, that is Leibniz and Hume, are perhaps the only two philosophers known as certifiably optimistic, albeit for different reasons. For Leibniz, it was his belief in God and the comfort that that gave him, that God would uh, only create the best possible world. Uh, for Hume, it was the opposite. <laughs> Hume was an atheist, and that gave him a sense of comfort. So there you go. Okay, now on to the heart of the matter, space and time. In order to understand Leibniz's thinking on space and time, we first need to mention the prevailing view of the time, which was defended as Newtonian, but which has long roots in Descartes, and um, even before Descartes. It's what I like to call the container view of space and time, but it is more respectfully referred to as absolute space and time. According to this view, space and time are absolute and mind independent. What does that mean? Well, it means that even if there was no matter or existing things, space would still exist. Likewise, even if there were no events or processes actually occurring, time would also still exist. But without space, no matter, no bodies could exist. And ditto events and processes without time. That is, no time, no events, no processes. So the order, the ontological order, is space and time are ontologically prior to existing beings, phenomena in the world. This is because change happens in space and time. Thus, they are contained in space and time and depend on space and time for their existence. To illustrate this, I have to tell you the story of a bucket. 
It's a bucket that is hanging from a rope and the bucket is filled with water and then it, it is spun. Now at first, the surface of the water in the bucket is flat when we begin, but as it spins, the surface becomes concave. Even when the bucket comes to rest, the water still exhibits this concaveness. Thus, according to proponents of absolute space, it's because the water is in the bucket, but the water and the bucket, which are moving together, are in space. Space is what's fixed, what underlies that movement. The water that is displaced to form the concave surface is evidence for those who believe in absolute space that space exists underneath or as a container for movement and underneath change through space and time. Now I'm not going to spend too much time or any time really on Leibniz's rather technical refutation of the absolute view of space and time. But this will suffice to give us enough of a foothold from which to explain Leibniz's positive arguments, that is his own ideas, for his theory of space and time. Before Einstein, even before there was much empirical science to support his view, Leibniz proposed that space and time are not absolute, but relative and phenomenal. Not mind-independent, but precisely mind-dependent, which I'll explain shortly. Keep in mind that by relative, Leibniz does not mean but we what we might colloquially mean by that term. Um, and we're going to explain that now. Leibniz is said to have come to this view of uh, relative space and time uh, as he developed his theory of mechanics or the theory of physical motion. So his views about space and time are tied with his account of motion. But his views are actually best laid out 30 years later in the previously mentioned letters known as the Clark-Leibniz letters. According to his view in these letters, time and space are not so much things in which bodies are located and move around or change, but, quote, a system of relations holding between things. And this, end quote, this quote is from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy entry on Leibniz. Time and space are also mind-dependent in the sense that where there are no matter nor bodies, space would have no existence. And were there no events or processes, time would also cease to exist or have no reality. An early formulation of Leibniz's view is quoted in an essay called Leibniz's Theory of Space and Time by Kate Emerson Ballard in the Journal of the History of Ideas, Volume 21, Number 1, um, and I, I will throw up a, a, a reference to that in the podcast notes. Um, but this is the quote. Space is nothing but the order of existence of things possible at the same time. While time is the order of existence of things possible successively. And by the way, I am relying on Emerson Ballard's article for most of the content of this podcast because my exposure to Leibniz has actually been very limited, even though I wrote my dissertation on conceptions of space. But my dissertation really focused on ancient philosophical conceptions as they are read in and through post-structuralism. So I pretty much bypassed modern history where it comes to uh, the history of space and philosophy. Now, let me read that quote again uh, more slowly. Space is nothing but the order of existence of things 
possible at the same time. While time is the order of existence of things possible successively. In other words, space and time are dependent on the existence of things for their being and their meaning. We've already heard this idea. We tagged it as mind dependence of space and time. This is what Leibniz meant by mind dependence. It depends, and mind here isn't probably what we literally want to say by mind, but it, it is um, idea or intellect or, right, it's, it's a, it's a uh, it has no existence outside of our intellectual processes or our thinking about things. But here's where it gets really interesting because while space and time are dependent on things and phenomena like bodies that are in motion by necessity, processes that take place in time, space and time are called merely ideal. This is because the relation between things, phenomena and substances, are not real but ideal. By real, we mean that time and uh, by real, what we mean is that time and space have no existence except as ideas that emerge for us um, in the the relation of the quality between things, like qualities like color and velocity. Time and space are not qualities themselves; they don't inhere in these things. They have no reality in that physical sense. That doesn't mean that space and time are less real or less uh, significant. But it does mean that the ontological order is uh, reversed, exactly reversed, from the position that those holding absolute space would take. We only arrive at space and time in and through our experience in and of the phenomenal world which is in constant change and motion and flux. So no things, no relation between things, no relation between things, no space, no time. Leibniz says as space and time that they are, quote unquote, beings of reason. Bodies stand in spatial and temporal relations to each other. But time and space themselves have no existence apart from being abstractions or idealizations made on the basis of these relations. And here is where we get to the crux of the question that logical analysis asked about the idealized or the idealism of Leibniz's conception of relative time and space. Leibniz's relational view of space and time goes along with the idea for which he's best known, the idea of the monad that he develops in his late metaphysics in a work called Monodalogie. Reconciling his views on space and time in the letters with his mature met metaphysics uh, is actually a subject of much scholarship and will take us a little too far astray today. So I'm actually going to leave it to those interested to pull up on this. There is a discussion of it at the very end of Emerson's, uh, Emerson Ballard's essay on um, page 64 through 65 if you want to go directly to that because I'm going to link it. So <clears throat> back to the bucket analogy. For those who subscribe to the absolute view of space, 
The water and the bucket are moving together as they spin. So the change in the surface of the water in the bucket cannot be a result of the relation between the water and, uh, and its container, the bucket, because the relation between those two things haven't changed because they were both spinning in the same way, right? But to a third thing in which both the bucket and the water moves, namely space and time. So here's a question for you. How does Leibniz resolve this? Or what would Leibniz say about this problem? I'm going to leave you with that question and encourage you to tweet at me any thoughts that you might have about this. I want you to try and figure it out. Tune into my Twitter feed tomorrow for an opportunity to suggest a topic for the next podcast. And check out continentalphilosophynow.com, our new website, for show notes, including references to the works that I consulted in putting together this podcast. Now, I want to leave you with this quote from Leibniz, which may serve as a little bit of a clue to our question. And let me just say that you're going to have to do a little bit of work, not just intellectually, but probably going to have to read a little bit more about Leibniz in order to figure this out. But here's the quote. It follows from what we have just said, that the natural changes of monads come from an internal principle, since an external cause would be unable to influence their inner being. It follows from what we have just said, that the natural changes of monads come from an internal principle, since an external cause would be unable to influence their inner being. <laughs> <laughs>